to our 12th podcast episode of Neurodiversity in a Nutshell. My name is Aryan, and today we're specifically going to be discussing the incorporation of neurodiversity-focused practices in special education programs and public schools. Let's get right into it. As we had discussed almost 10 episodes ago, which seems ages ago, one of the major aspects of our introduction to neurodiversity was the impact on education. This is the episode where we're actually going to be discussing the intersectionality of neurodiversity and education programs. In order to effectively discuss this intersectionality, it is important to answer a few questions. One, how does the neurodiversity movement manifest in educational practices? Two, how do such practices differ from the current systems of special education? And three, what benefits and disadvantages have been displayed in educational programs that are informed by the neurodiversity movement? So let's start with the first question. How does the neurodiversity movement manifest in educational practices? Neurodiversity-centric practices are based on the philosophy that everyone is part of normal and natural human variation, as per definitions and research conducted by various researchers, but specifically the Stanford Neurodiversity Project. Thus, we can see that inclusive education and programs in which those with neurodiverse conditions and neurotypical individuals represent the philosophy of the movement. There are many examples that we will discuss later on, but it's important to understand the importance of inclusive classrooms first. Neurodiversity in the classroom has grown as a topic, but discussions are often hampered by the issues that we discussed in our last episode, the state of special education, when things like ineffective curriculum, teacher shortages, and funding shortfalls arise that contribute to unprepared teachers and many other issues globally, especially in the United States, which is a developed country, which may be initially considered to be the best option to improve curriculum, but are often falling behind compared to smaller developed countries due to trickling inefficiencies with funding, teaching, and curriculum. As the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development explains in 2006, otherwise known as the OECD, one of the primary methods of supporting neurodiverse students is personalized education, which enables personal adaptations by teachers for specific needs and abilities. These could include more specific assessments compared to the general IQ tests, like Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences. I'll be talking a little bit more about Gardner's theories in a little bit. But these adaptations to personalized education begin on a higher level, in which policies embrace neurodiversity and its philosophical foundations, including funding, assessments, structure, professional training, and much more. These practices are often grounded in evidence-based practices discussing research and trials for students with neurodiverse conditions, the inclusion of teachers, parents, and the children in educational plans that are hyper-specific to the child to the, ch uh, to the child fulfill the true goals of special education, taking it an additional step past IEPs. Some of these issues and concerns we discuss are pretty much inevitable or too rigid to be changed. For example, things like funding and legislation schemes are often too hard to overcome in the status quo. However, items like assessments and professional training can be modified and tailored to neurodiversity-centric practices. Shearer specifically finds that the alternative assessment of Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences helps identify the unique tendencies of each and every brain of an individual, more embracing to neurodiversity compared to the current binarisms of IQ tests, which define people as high-functioning or low-functioning and use people without disabilities as a metric for this. For example, somebody would be considered high-functioning if they are more closely leveled to a neurotypical IQ. However, that's pretty much inaccurate. Gardner's multiple intelligences essentially posits that there are specific strengths and different types of intelligences based on the given tests. There are eight usually, visual-spatial, verbal-linguistic, musical-rhythmic, logical-mathematical, interpersonal, intrapersonal, naturalistic, and bodily-kinesthetic. 
these are all just different types of learning and basically ways that people can actually access these things and we'll be giving a couple examples in a little bit. Research informs us there are unique benefits of such theories when actually implemented in classroom spaces, providing different contexts for students and engaging a variety of their senses. For example, learning about fractions through musical notes, flower petals, and poetic meter are actually supported by research because they bring in different methods like naturalistic and musical rhythmic. Specifically, one, providing students with multiple ways to access content improves learning, according to Hattie in 2011. Two, providing students with multiple ways to demonstrate their knowledge and skills increases engagement in the classroom along with learning and provides teachers with more accurate understanding of student knowledge and skills, according to Darling Hammond in 2010. And according to Tomlinson in 2014, instruction should be informed as much as possible by detailed knowledge about students' specific strengths and areas of growth. Another example is those of co-teaching classrooms, which have one teacher that is usually basically teaching general education and another teacher that is a learning specialist or multiple teachers that are learning specialists that can support both neurodiverse and neurotypical students. These situations allow for blended learning environments that improve inclusion practices by general education teachers and by neurotypical students in the future. Gupta et al. specifically finds that the enforcement of inclusive environments have seen improvements in educational outcomes. City University of New York researchers have determined that students in inclusive classrooms or co-teaching classrooms report higher graduation rates and standardized test performance, outperforming students in just special education classrooms with no exposure to neurotypical students. This is primarily due to the dynamic learning strategies and general instruction that spur excellence rather than the basic benchmarks that are usually enforced in special education programs. Additionally, neurotypical children working alongside neurodiverse children are reported to be less dependent for educational needs, transitioning into peer tutoring and leadership roles that improve mastery in subject matter. So it shows benefits for both neurotypical children as well as neurodiverse children. Such examples pursue the neurodiverse philosophy in education, making it into a tangible movement rather than just spoken words. This translation from research to actual classrooms and practice improves the inclusive circumstances that are currently lacking in public education. We also want to clarify and mention that these examples and specific modifications are just a small snapshot, a very small snapshot, of the true changes that can be made to make education much more inclusive. There is a large breadth of systems and structures across the globe that embrace neurodiversity in the classroom and even extend it into the workplace. Now let's talk about a bigger concept. More importantly, how are these specific practices different from current systems and special education programs? We kind of touch on this, but I think it's important that we're specific. One may ask, how is personalized education different from an IEP? They sound like the same thing. You are partially correct, but the difference is the basis of such considerations. In essence, the theoretical foundations that accompany such practices. When strategies like IEPs are not considerate of the philosophical basis of neurodiversity and differences in normal human variation, issues of implementation can often take place, creating subpar special education programs when these programs become understaffed or underfunded. As Thomas Armstrong of the Association for Supervision and Curriculum Development explains, conventional special education views disability categories, like ADHD, dyslexia, and autism, as having an organic basis, usually involving some combination of biological and neurological you know, causes. This orientation draws from theories related to genetics and neurobiology. Neurodiversity, on the other hand, plays a greater emphasis on the social and ecological dimensions of diagnostic labels. By examining how a person may be disabled in certain contexts, but not in others. 
For example, a person with autism spectrum condition may function at a level surpassing a typically neuro like a neurotypical individual when working at a job that capitalizes on the ability to discover pattern detection or tiny errors in computer code, as seen by Henry in 2015 during evidence-based research of a specialist in Denmark. We actually talked a little bit about specialist in Denmark when we were talking about job placement and consulting and how this specific company's company helps a lot of people that have autism spectrum condition and other disabilities. A practical outcome of this perspective is that the role of the neurodiversity-oriented special educator becomes less one of correcting errors or remediating deficits, but actually focuses on creating environments in which students can thrive. Another basically big practical difference that we can look at is something related to models of disabilities, strengths versus deficits. Armstrong's further Armstrong furthers that the biggest practical difference between special education as it's currently practiced and the neurodiversity-based approach is the way in which educators emphasize deficits or strengths. Although special educators are certainly taught to look for students' strengths, the infrastructure or the models of special education right now don't actually provide ways for formal or informal instruments, methods, or systems for assessing students' strengths. The one place in special education that has done a relatively good job is the field of you know, talented education, but these procedures need to be available for everybody with students with special needs. The diagnostic instruments used in most special education systems are designed primarily to diagnose disabilities and deficits. The neurodiversity-based approach, by contrast, aims to make use of the emerging literature on the strengths of ed special education populations and focusing primarily on these evidence-based practices to further strengths and abilities. But now it's important to consider. This idea of neurodiversity has been in place for decades. There has to be some sort of reason that these philosophies haven't been, you know, incorporated yet. And that's why we have to pay attention to a few of the disadvantages. We've spent a lot of time talking about benefits that are accompanied with neurodiversity-based practices. However, there are some obstacles that definitely should be considered. One major concern is that portraying students in special education programs in terms of solely their strengths or solely their abilities may discourage special services and need services and prevent them from uh, receiving innovative approaches to education. Organizations and advocacy have focused on these services and you know as a primary basis for added funding. Without these organizations and kind of focusing on the strength recognition, this funding goes away. And at the point at which we've seen that all of these programs are already underfunded, it could be a huge problem for the entire special education system in the United States or other developed and developing countries. Another concern could be the academic struggles that could occur without these special education programs. When considering these disadvantages in special education and potential obstacles for implementing neurodiversity-centric curriculum, policymakers and educators need to focus on creating provisions to draw the boundaries between providing those services while actually still recognizing strengths. This is something that needs to be discussed on a policy level, not just for me and you on this podcast. To consider the academic struggles, strategies like co-teaching should be considered as well to improve these educational outcomes as we've seen from the City University of New York. We end off here. Thank you for listening to our 12th episode. Be sure to check out our previous episode discussing the state of special education today. Stay tuned for our last episode to close out 2020 and the very first episode of January as well. We plan on releasing these back-to-back -back days, obviously December 31st and January 1st. Check out our website www.unitopia.foundation if you want to learn more about our organization. 
as many of you do already, reach out to us at publicrelations at unitopia.foundation for episode ideas and questions about previous topics or just questions in general. We hope you're able to listen in on December 31st and January 1st, and we hope that you're having an amazing holiday season thus far, and we hope that you're going to be able to stay safe during the current pandemic, keep your masks on, stay safe when you go outside, and please follow COVID-19 protocols wherever you may be. And we hope to see you soon, and we hope that we can see you in 2021 as well. Happy holidays, everyone.